0: Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer Pierce, and this is Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. In this unprecedented time of accelerating explosive change, many of us feel like we don't know what we're doing. But I know one thing we can't solve the problems of digital transformation inside silos. So we're doing the work of digital transformation one conversation at a time. very honored to have with me today, Kai Bruner, who is a product designer, a seasoned product designer. And uh, I'm going to let Kai introduce himself to you.
1: Well, thank you, Jennifer, for having me. It's a real honor. Yes, I'm a, um, I'm a seasoned product designer, and I now am a design advisor to early stage startups. I uh, consider myself sometimes a, a Ronin, you know, who is who is in search of the next adventure. So I, I have great joy in in finding the adventure that is right for me and where uh, I truly can can help, you know, founders make those pivotal decisions that help them get to the next milestone.
0: I certainly share your feeling that software development and technology is an adventure and every project is a new one. And uh, I think just, uh, I want to back up just a bit. I shared with Kai earlier that some people have been asking me, "How do I pick the guests for Singular XQ?" Sometimes people reach out to me, but most of the time, I'm on a hunt for people who are curious and people who care. You'd be surprised at how few people who are in knowledge capital industries like technology lack curiosity, a fundamental curiosity. They don't ask why certain things are the way they are. They don't see the things around them that they don't understand and pursue, but there are those rare people. I'd say it's probably like the top 20% of people in the field who let their curiosity drive them. And when I saw Kai on LinkedIn, I highly recommend Kai Bruner's LinkedIn page and his videos because he was telling stories about war stories, about being in the developments scrum and how they won certain objectives. And it reminded me of one of my favorite books about technology, which is not actually a nonfiction book. It's a fiction book written by Gene Kim called The Phoenix Project. And it's a a novel about IT and DevOps, if you can imagine such a thing. I picked it up saying how this is gonna be so bad. And it wasn't, it was a riveting novel that delivered more understanding of agile DevOps than I could have been taking a course even. So I asked Kai, did you read that book? And he said, I sure have. So Kai, (laughs) talk a little bit about The Phoenix Project and how it has influenced you like it has influenced me.
1: Yes. So I was introduced to the Phoenix project through a colleague of mine who was the product manager at the time with whom I I interacted on on a daily basis. And he brought it up very casually and simply invited me to to read it. And at, at first, you know, I had that initial hesitation of thinking, oh, you know, IT DevOps, is this something that's really that a designer would be interested in? but i self examine regularly and more importantly any time i adopt any kind of stance that is closed minded or that doesn't lead to an opening i you know i put myself in check and so i said let's just discover it and find out what it's about and i was just enthralled it was a page turner and i was i just thought wow i did not realize that it and devops could be this exciting the, you know, there were twists and turns and uh, there was intrigue. There even was this semblance of there being an arch nemesis, so to speak. And it's not always necessarily an actual individual. Sometimes the nemesis is the work ethos in itself, or it's uh, time.
0: <laughs> the, yes.
1: Yes. Or, or sometimes this is what I thought was really interesting. Jennifer, it's really, it's really funny when you look at things from the outside, you're not biased by your own emotional involvement. So when you're hearing about a, for example, a company that's struggling, right, and it doesn't affect you personally, you have the subjectivity, where you can look at things, uh, you know, impartially, as opposed to when you're on the inside, and you know that you're with you are experiencing the struggle, you're not able to really assess what's going on in the same way. And so here we have this opportunity through this book to look at things very objectively. And I just found it was fascinating to see how there are invisible forces, so to speak, that are really undermining productivity and being able to to reach certain goals. And these invisible forces, I think, are truly what most people are dealing with on a daily basis because they're simply not privy to certain conversations or simply understanding their colleagues or just the pressures or dynamics that their team members are under and so when you think about it the average person no matter how well-intentioned they are are so biased by their subjectivity that they simply cannot access this perspective to understand, oh, this is what's really going on at the macro level. And that's what I thought this book did so well.
0: I agree. And we're on a vibe here because I was just talking about this today. Uh, A lot of times development projects of any sort feel like you're driving in the snow, especially when it's in a large enterprise, because there's so many unseen political forces that are motivating certain things. And you say, why are they doing things this way? Uh, Why aren't they doing it this way? There's usually some kind of interpersonal thing or politics influencing it that you don't know about. And it makes you feel, but I, I think it's really important to step back and just sort of analyze other people's point of view. And I think that that's awesome what you just described. That you know, you you have to release your own subjectivity, your own ego, and your own stake in what's going on in order to understand everybody's point of view. I love that. So let's talk a little bit more about this. We were talking about agile DevOps. Can we talk a little bit about what is agile DevOps for people who might not know, and how has it impacted designers and the design automation that has come out of agile DevOps? How is that impacting product design as well?
1: Ah, okay. So you know. Uh, at this point, you know, the, the term agile has been, you know, around for so long. Everybody understands that it's a it's a methodology. The way I look at it, it's I don't consider it really something other than it's a state of mind. It's an approach. It's a, it's a disposition. It's almost more it's almost more encapsulated in the notion of do not think too far ahead, right? Do not discipline yourself to not think too far ahead because we don't know that much ahead. So let's just make decisions within a certain time increment so that we can then see if that was the right decision. That's really what it comes down to, right? And that
0: was brilliant. Yep, that's right.
1: Now, when it comes to DevOps, I think that's also very fascinating because it has this cryptic label that I think... May be inaccessible to the general public. First of all, it's it's not very melodic, you know. DevOps, a person could mm-hmm. wonder, well, you know, what does that pertain to? When in fact, it really is when you look at how it's written. DevOps, right? If if that were to be an illustration, it illustrates the uniting of these two tribes. You have the dev tribe and you have the ops tribe. And that's what the movement is really all about. It's two tribes who come together and who develop a, a common culture so that they can understand each other, so that they have, a, you know, aligned incentive so that the, more importantly, their efforts become, you know, they're synergistic, that they are truly working in unison, that unity between these two tribes mostly comes from understanding the plight of one another and what their pain points are. And so, as you can see, that's that's a very common story, I think, that applies across the human experience, whether it's at the micro level of just between two people in a relationship and then extend it to the broader world stage where you may have two nations, you know, that need to figure out how to how to work together and create a culture in common. So that's how I look at it. These dynamics are nothing new. We're just giving them specific names so that they're contextualized.
0: Yes yes and and part of the agile DevOps movement too is this idea of the continuous implementation and continuous delivery and the continu- the c i c d pipeline right mm-hmm. And I feel at least in my experience that has really impacted designers in particular ways. Have you observed that or and what do you think about that?
1: Yes, so the first article I wrote on DevOps and how it affects UX. That was the title at the time. It was it was for Wired Magazine. And the title was, is DevOps driving UX? I believe it was, it was that. And the notion I had why this came to my consciousness is that it comes down to who is setting the pace. And there's this notion, you know, of continuous delivery where an organization becomes so perfect, so to speak, in this cycle of creating value and delivering it, right, that it becomes continuous that you there comes a point where you can no longer distinguish where it begins and ends. And I remember when I was thinking of that notion, I was thinking, well, if that becomes possible, where the continuous delivery becomes such a, a well oiled machine, then where where's the bottleneck? The bottleneck is actually design,
0: because mm-hmm.
1: de- design follows a, you know a different cycle. And also, what I think is fascinating with design is that design isn't always so obvious where the solution is. Sometimes you can go down a path three quarters of the way, and that's where the epiphany comes. And then you realize I was going down the wrong path altogether. And then you, you switch, but you would have not been able to switch had you not gone three quarters down the wrong path.
0: Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's why I started to notice that there's somewhat of a mismatch sometimes because the underpinning to, to continuous delivery is predictability. The whole exercise is to mitigate risk and also to be able to predict the delivery of value, so to speak. And as we know, design is not that linear design is in fact, very non-linear. And I remember thinking, wow, if you have a practice that is this strong, such as DevOps, how is design actually going to evolve? How is it going to shape design? And I think the answer we have to that question, we're seeing it literally unfold today in two ways. The adoption and development of design systems, which if you think about it, that is a lot closer to engineering than actual design and the, compo- you,
0: the uh, composable environment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. As you recall, in the first chapter of developing interactive products from kiosks to C. D. roms to websites, there was this golden era that was just such an adventure where everything was so new that everybody was trying something different. And most companies were distinguishing themselves by trying something different from the competitor. And when you look at where we are today, most websites look the same now because they've all adopted the same patterns. They usually stem from the same templates. Add to that design systems where at this point you're looking at Lego blocks. And the whole, interestingly enough, the whole intent is... To be able to hand these building blocks over to the engineering team, to the dev team, so that they have the autonomy to move forward in their development without being hampered by the design process. It's almost as if what we most apprehended, what we were most, I guess you could say, where we did not want to be is practically exactly where we are which is the true enjoyment of design is in the creativity. It's that moment when you don't know, what could this be? And you reach out and bring ideas together to where it comes slowly into focus until it finally is something. And then you have to go through the process of presenting it, basically selling the idea for its adoption. I think that's where the real enjoyment comes from.
0: Mm. You hear that, like, we want to do the generative work, we want to do the generative work, but what they need is more of what you're talking about, it's just the little pieces that we hand off to them, so that they can go into the the figure eight of the continuous implementation, and continuous delivery. And I always think of it, as Double Dutch, I grew up in the city and lots of people playing Double Dutch with the two jump ropes Uh and they're swinging so fast and you got to figure out how to jump in. Uh And that's like the, 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 the hardest part of the game. And that's what it feels like to be a designer today, I think. But you know, the other interesting thing that I feel like is being lost, design has become very centralized in part, I think in reaction to what you're describing. And when it's centralized, you miss that sense that we're all part of the same team solving the same problem together. Whereas I've been involved in scrums where, yes, I'm the lead product designer, and I'm also there to deliver the design thinking to the team. And because that starts to affect the product owner's decisions and how they're prioritizing things, I'm bringing all of those design thinking operations to them in order to do that. It becomes indistinguishable when i'm involved in solving a design problem or a complex system problem and those are you know sometimes the engineers will say hey we need to know what order to solve these problems and we need to know what technology is the best way to approach it and um, like can you throw a workshop together for us right
1: mm-hmm. and that's
0: that to me is is like when things are working the best We are all solving and the design approach, and that's what the design thinking template comes from, right? Is that marriage of science and engineering with art. They just interviewed all the artists and all the scientists and all the engineers they could find and found the common denominators and how they approach problem solving and that, voila. So the template is designed not just for creating things that look beautiful and look nice and are highly usable. It's also there to address any kind of technical problem or complex problem. So I feel like that's gone away a lot and we're becoming almost irrelevant to the process. And I hope that could be solved. I mean, have you seen good solutions to this? Or are you just sort of resigned to this is where it's gone? We've imitated, oh. you know, the composable environment of DevOps or automating all these things. Or do you see solutions on the horizon?
1: Oh, I definitely see solutions. And I don't have the emotion or the sentiment of being resigned, you know, to uh, a certain plight. I think that. It's a, it's either a growing pain or it's just a a, a step in, in the evolution and where I think we're, we're at a place where things have, have evolved so quickly that designers have to also, I would say, recognize that the design decision or as we call it design thinking applies beyond just the visual aspect of things. That may sound like a platitude, of course, but what I'm saying here is where we are is the byproduct of what's happened in the past five years. There's been an acceleration and we see today to segue into the, you know, the topic of design automation, design automation is here. And I think that there is going to be an adjustment to figure out, well, if design can go this quickly then how does that change the nature of design? Because before all the time and effort, what I call the enjoyment of applying your faculties and your acumen to something is in the process, you know? So now if you accelerate that process to the point where you hardly get to participate anymore, right? Then it makes you wonder, so then like you said well then then what do i do it would be like for example if you had a musician right a musician or a composer where the greatest enjoyment that they found was in hearing the music first in their in their mind and then figuring out okay how does this translate now into something on paper so that other people can play it right but now as you know there's even the, the automation of the music writing where mm-hmm. you can, same thing as we see with chat GPT, you type in something and it produces music where it could, I can totally see how anybody involved in, in creating music could wonder, hey, wait a minute, you just took away my, the enjoyment I had. Yes, and I think and that's, it's a,
0: that's been around for a long time. I think there's a way in which the emotion that you're describing is forcing people to suppress the knowledge that is here. That technology for music has existed for a long time. 1999, the project began and David Cope, he developed Emmy and Emmy has been producing compositions on Spotify for a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but I, I contacted him about maybe four or five years ago for a um, art installation that I was designing based on Frankenstein. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to have an AI driven or computer generated score. And we got to talking about the history. So it's been around for a while. And Mm -hmm. design automation, as you've mentioned, is here, has been here. AI is work have been working on developing websites and UI for a while, but it's kind of like with the advent with Chat GPT, we have to sort of face the music to use the metaphor that we're using here. So, yeah. what I wonder is, does this release design to do the more generative work? Because there's a famous saying so software development happens somewhere in the design process, design starts way before that happens. So does that release us for more generative work?
1: You know, that's that's very interesting. Over the course of a, a design career, I think a designer, I'm not saying that this doesn't happen earlier in a person's career, but it, it has a lot to do with what is that designer exposed to? What level of complexity are they exposed to, whether it's in product-wise or whether it's simply in, in the, the business arena? And so I think that there's different aspects of design that enter the consciousness of the designer, where it could be that for some, they remain satisfied with simply the asset that gets produced. So they thoroughly enjoy the just the craftsmanship, right? A lot of the focus is often placed on crafting the asset as opposed to other designers may find a greater enjoyment in Design being the facilitator of an outcome, which is typically how I have looked at it for a long time, where there's an outcome that needs to happen from a business standpoint. And design is either going to facilitate that or it's going to get in the way. And so that's where I developed this fascination for understanding what are the underpinnings from the business standpoint, and not, not just, I'm just, not just talking about the, you know, the operations of the business, but it always comes back to sales for any product to live. Somebody has to buy it. And mm-hmm. whatever method we use to, to, to get to that transaction, whether, you know, we call it for a time, it was called a freemium. Then we realize that even when you give it away for free people, don't necessarily want it. Now the evolution is that we're now at product-led growth, you know, where that becomes the new thing where, hey, if you present in a certain way, if the user experiences value quickly enough, then they can basically kick the tires for their 14-day you know, trial period. And then the transaction occurs. But all this to say, one of my greatest and most cherished relationships, working relationships, was with a sales executive. I found that his vantage point was inspiring, was fascinating, because he was the tip of the spear. He was the one who was in the trenches that was ahead of everything that was happening You know, back at, the, at headquarters, who could tell you, this is what's happening in the market. This is where we have to be. Now, mind you, that information eventually makes its way back through, you know, the product management that eventually gets distilled into, you know, user stories and then projects for the the design team and whatnot. But if you jump ahead to where exactly is this intel coming from, it's coming from, from the people who are on the front line, the front lines of sales. You know, Mm -hmm. in the DevOps world, you know, that also includes the solution architects who are exposed to a reality in the market that I think is the most fascinating aspect of competing and solving product design problems is through this lens. What is happening in sales? And I can tell you that some of the most pivotal decisions, the most important decisions that were made in helping us, you know, eventually earn the position of being number one in the market was through the feedback that we were getting from the solution architects who would come to these invaluable insights because they were doing the POCs, they were doing the demos and they would find things out in the moment. Mm. And so all this to say, as a product designer, I find that fascinating. And so I look at design as, okay, how can design help that person who's at the front lines so that they Mm. feel that that what they're doing is, you know, delivering the message and convincing basically the prospect. That's what it comes down to. What
0: I love about what you're talking about is just that I've always said that Well, first of all, the magic for the designer team, and I include a researcher like myself in that, is to match the user need to a business need, and that's where the magic is. But also, when you're talking about sales and the business, you are deploying the empathy that we're trained to deploy in designing solutions for users. But you're doing it for your entire team as well. And I've often said that let's take our tools for users and develop engineer empathy, develop sales and business empathy, and understand their needs. Because if we meet those needs, we're all going to win, right? What Absolutely, happens yes. instead is that power dynamic you and I discussed, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's that's great. I don't want to talk too much because I want to hear your point of view. So I'm going to ask you one last question before we wrap up today. Are you ready? Okay. So the final question I would like to ask you is, I would like to ask you about the future of design. So (sighs) where do you see it all going? Where do you see it all going? I mean, we started to hint at it a little bit, but where's it going to go next?
1: Six years ago, I made a small 60 second segment. Labeled the future of design. And I got to tell you, Jennifer, I was I was so hesitant to say anything because I didn't want to be embarrassed a couple of years from then and realizing how <laughs> wrong I was. And today I look at it like, wow, I was actually right in my assertion of what was going to happen. What I had imagined is that design automation would develop to the point where AI would be considered a collaborator. As a person on the design team who is Highly, highly productive. So you know, when it comes down to you know, iterating or simply putting all the elements out to start with, where your starting point is not from scratch, but there's this wealth of knowledge we've accumulated that AI, you know, helps us wade through so that we can start with what's relevant to what we're designing. And so, Coming back to what you were asking, so what does that do for the practitioner or the design leader? I noticed that it allows us to focus on different aspects of design that I think are more interesting and more interesting in the sense that you're looking at the problem you're wanting to solve or where you want to bring value from a more holistic vantage point. I don't want to be too specific in saying what that is because quite frankly, I'm discovering it right now and I'm discovering it in the mandates I've currently taken on as design advisor to, you know, these early stage startups where I get to see things from a perspective that I would not have been able to, if I was too entrenched in the process or in the practice of making something so you pull back and you're able to see a problem with more clarity and you're starting to see that oh the design mindset the design if we want to call it you're looking for in elegance you're looking for a way to solve a problem with elegance and mm. when you, you apply that, for example, an early stage startup that's looking for you know, market fit, that's looking for the right use case to be able to get traction, right? Mm. That, that seminal point where the product actually gains a foothold in the market because it's found the right match with the right prospect, That is something that is achieved by applying design methods. That's what I've experienced.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's all very exciting. I hope you'll come back again, Kai. This has been an amazing conversation. I talked more than I want to because I feel like I want to just talk to you as a person to person. But for the benefit of the audience, I'm going to ask Broken to edit out a lot of my speaking because (laughs) what you have to say is what we need to hear. Once again, I want to underscore your understanding of the whole picture is the hallmark of somebody who is curious and who cares. And that's who we look for on Singular XQ. So I'm going to say goodbye to everybody now, and I'll see you all later. Thanks for coming. And above all, be well.
1: Thank you so much, Jennifer.
0: Thanks for tuning in. All of the opinions expressed here are of the ones speaking them and do not reflect on their employers or organizations, nor are they necessarily shared by Singular XQ. Today's episode was produced by Caden Chernoff with support and content strategy from Ikra Miriam. Mad editing skills provided by Brogan Malloy and Lauren Edwards and original music provided by Abby Ahmad. Do you have feedback for us or a topic you'd like us to cover? How about suggesting a potential guest or even better, how about you coming in and be a guest on our show to talk about the work you do in digital transformation? Reach out to us at info at or connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, and share. Have a great day.